So our second reading for today comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning with the 8th verse. Remember Christ, or Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, a descendant of David. That is my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, so that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is sure. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of this and warn them before God that they are to avoid wrangling over words, which does no good but only ruins those who are listening. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by him, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly explaining the word of truth. Here ends our second reading. Please pray with me. Most gracious God, we pray that you send your Holy Spirit among us this morning. Anoint us. That in these words to come, we may, hear, we may hear your word for our lives. Amen. Well, as you now know, those of you who have to suffer through listening to me regularly. As you now know, uh, I do enjoy picking out the text in the lectionary that is the most obscure text as a challenge to all of us. And so this Sunday, I have selected as the text to preach on uh, this text from 2 Timothy, probably not a letter that you've spent much time with in your life. 2 Timothy comes from that collection of letters known fondly as the pastoral epistles. Uh, I won't quiz you on uh, who of you knew that. But the pastoral epistles uh, earned that name, so-called, because these letters uh, are interested in the life of the church, in the pastoral care of the church. I think of letters that are like, this is like the email inbox of a first century minister. Uh, now, while some of my emails are exciting, most of them are not. <laughs> but imagine you picked out the best ones and put them together. This is what this is. Letters to the churches in the first century. Now, uh, it must be said that even though they purport to be by the Apostle Paul, most scholars say that these letters were probably by those people who were in a general Pauline school with various themes of Paul, but not actually being written by Paul. But nevertheless, I'll use Paul just because... Well, that's tradition, and it's easier than saying pseudo-Paul every time I'm talking about the letter. And the thing that these letters are most concerned with is that great question of what does it mean to live a Christian life? What does that look like? You know, the day-to-day business. Post-conversion, post-whatever sort of it is that brought you to church, You know, you're growing up in the church, you're living your life in the church. What does that day-to-day life look like? It's not as 
uh, exciting and engaging, perhaps, as some of the teachings of Jesus or um, as mind-bending as some of the theology of Paul. But it talks about how, how, how do we live our lives? What does it look like, do you think, to live a Christian life? How would you separate those who were Christians from those who are not? Is there a difference ethically? Do you think the way Christians live versus not? Could you pick out someone on the street? Oh, that person's a Christian. Oh, that person's not a Christian based on their ethics or their way of life. What would you say are the defining moments of a Christian life? I remember when I was in first grade, like I am now, but much smaller, and I remember going in and uh, in the front of the classroom on one of these big white sheets of paper written in blue marker were the rules of conduct for that class, for my first grade class. Miss Woodhead had conveniently put that up there. So as first graders, we were supposed to raise our hands before talking. We weren't supposed to interrupt others. We were supposed to be kind to our classmates. Those types of things were written up in blue letters. So if, we ever wanted to knew, if, so if I ever wanted to know what it meant to be a good first grader, I just had to read the rules on the, on the page and then just check, check, check. Yep, good first grader. Imagine if we had a similar thing for Christianity. Wouldn't that be great? It would also sort of make my job a bit superfluous, but that's fine. Um, you know, up in front of the meeting house, a big white sheet of paper lit, written in blue marker, this is what you need to do in order to be a good Christian, live a good Christian ethical life. In the words of uh, one of my fellow clergy here in Houston, you could live your best life now just by reading <laughs> those things on the wall. What would you put up there for rules of a Christian ethical life? You might say, uh, give to whoever asks, go the extra mile, turn the other cheek, love your enemies. You might delve into uh, one of the actual letters of Paul, letter of Romans, uh, chapter 12, that famous list of let love be genuine, hold fast to what is good, you know, outdo one another in showing mutual affection, serve the Lord. If you really took the time, I bet you could go through and you could pick out from the sayings of Jesus, letters of Paul, maybe other things in the New Testament, and put together a really nice list of this is what you have to do in order to be a good Christian. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That list right there? And then it'd be simple. You just follow it and you get joy, salvation, happiness, perfect life, you know? Here's the problem, though. Let's say we were to have one of these lists, which, again, we could find if we wanted to, or at least make one up. Let's say you were to have one of these lists. The problem is is that if I were a betting man, I would bet that you would fail in following it. You know, let's say say you have a good day. You, You sleep really well. You get up. Uh, If you've got kids, the kids get off well. They've somehow got smiles on their faces. Miracles do happen. And then you get in your car, you start driving to work, and all of a sudden, some guy in a... I won't won't make too many stereotypes. Some person uh, cuts you off going 85 miles per hour. um, And you're like, ah! You know, almost got into an accident. Oh, darn. All of a sudden, you might not be the most charitable that you could be otherwise. Or Or you get to work, and maybe your boss had a bad day, and all of a sudden... Uh, lets it out on you, or perhaps uh, you 
get a phone call or an email from a friend and something bad's happened to that friend, maybe a new diagnosis of something, or maybe you get a call and someone's beating up your kid at school, or maybe your day wasn't that good, maybe you're tired, a little testy, maybe you're being a little more selfish for one reason or another, you see your neighbor getting a new car, and you think, gosh, maybe I need a new car for myself, or you look at Instagram or Facebook and see people on these vacations, and that sense of jealousy and envy builds up inside of you, and you get angry or have uncharitable thoughts or actions. Has this ever happened to you? Or perhaps part of you looks at that list of things that you need to live in order to live a Christian ethical life, and there are those times where you don't want to live them. You know what I'm talking about? Those times where you go watch Oliver Stone's movie, Wall Street, and you see the character Gordon Gecko, and you start cheering him on. Yeah, Gordon Gecko. <laughs> or you sneak off to see the new movie, The Joker, because you want to see what it, because you want to have that, that, like, that like dark side of your human nature being spoken to. Huh? I know that's there, somewhere within you. But, this is, but this, here's the Christian life, though. You've got this, this, this list of conduct. You attempt to achieve this list of conduct. You fail in your achieving of, this, of, this, of these conduct rules, and then you run into the warm embrace of God's grace. You feel a nice little you know, Christian hug, and then you go try again to do your list of things, and then you fail, and you go back. Back and forth, back and forth. The Christian ethical life, right? At least a lot of good Lutherans would say that's the way it should function, but <laughs> for those of you who are Lutherans here. Um, but yeah, back and forth. You know what I mean? You've got this list of Christian ideals. You know, in the classic Lutheran sense, you've got law and gospel. You've got the law, what you should live by, how you should live. You try and reach those goals. You try and do that. And then you fail and you rely on the grace of God. And then you try it again. And then you try it again. This back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Is that what the Christian ethical life looks like? Honest question. Or... Or you're someone who has tried this back and forth and thinks that it's a total waste of time and then you ignore it altogether. You look at that list that's on the, on the front of the meeting house in blue marker, the list that says, give to whoever asks and turn the other cheek and love your enemies. And you just decide, you know what, I'm going to fail that anyway, so I'm just not going to pay attention to it anymore. I'm not going to stop trying. I mean, does that resonate with some of you, you know? Are you always striving to live the ideal that's put forth in the New Testament? And going on that back and forth? Or or sometimes you're just like, you know what? I'm just going to be me and that's going to be good enough. I don't need that list of rules. Sometimes when people do that, you might see these other folks uh, going about and acting their lives just like anyone else as though they never went to church or were Christian at all. And there's that question of, like, what does it mean to live a Christian life? What is it? What does it become at that point? Is there some time at which you find yourself lacking spiritual integrity because you don't think that you're actually making that effort to live that Christian life? What are we to do? Good theology on a Sunday morning, ethics. This is where it's helpful to turn to our emails from the first century. Maybe Christians for the last 2,000 years have wrestled with similar things. This is not something new, trying to figure out what the Christian ethical life might look like. 
Our text for today begins with Paul writing to his disciple Timothy and saying, he starts off with, remember Jesus Christ. It's not a list of ethical do's and don'ts. It's not some white sheet in the front of a meeting house. It just says, he just says, remember Jesus Christ. He says to endure, to not deny Jesus. And then the key line in this text is the last line, verse 15. And it says, be eager, be eager to present yourself to God as one who is tried and tested, or as the NRSV translates it, as one who is approved. A worker so skilled and experienced that you have no shame at all. You have no reason to be ashamed of your work. You're not worried about your work. And someone who is cutting through, as the actual Greek would say, cutting through to the word of truth. Cutting straight to the word of truth. That's what Paul says to Timothy. Be eager to present yourselves as a worker approved, by, as, as someone approved by God, a worker who is unashamed, someone cutting through to the word of truth. In the 1970s and 80s, uh, there was a big sea change in the way that Christians talked and conceived of ethics and the Christian life. Probably the best known of a number of authors who are writing about this is a guy named Stanley Hauerwas who taught at Duke Divinity School. The essence of what Hauerwas and others were arguing in the 70s and 80s is that the Christian moral life is not about trying to follow necessarily some list of do's and don'ts and then failing and going back and forth. Instead, what they argued is that each of us have certain stories, certain narratives of ourselves within, our, within us that dictate our moral behavior. So you see yourself as a particular type of person, whatever it happens to be. You're a loving husband, a loving friend, uh, a diligent worker, a good American, a good Republican, a good Democrat, um, a good Astros fan, um, a good Christian. And as a result of your self-identity in these different ways, you then, that identity, you then have to fit your actions morally into, into some sort of coherent narrative that fits in that identity. And each of those aspects of your identity have certain virtues to them, virtues that, when you take time, you cultivate those virtues, and they actually change who you are as an individual. And those virtues are cultivated in communities. I'll give you an example from pop culture, because I'm very hip, so pop culture example. Uh, who here has seen the series Breaking Bad? Okay. Uh, so Breaking Bad is a series that came out several years ago about a high school chemistry teacher by the name of Walter White. All right. So this guy, again, some of the narratives that went on within Walter White's mind. Walter White is a high school chemistry teacher, but someone who's very frustrated with his work because he's someone who could have done, in his mind, many different things. And some of his peers went on to make a ton of money, and he was stuck and and fairly burnt out teaching high school students chemistry. He's also someone who's a loving husband and a loving father. 
Um, and he then gets a cancer diagnosis, a terminal cancer diagnosis. And he realizes that the bills that he's going to have to face, the medical bills he's going to have to face, are those that he can't pay. And he's particularly concerned about him dying early and not being able to have any money or provisions for his son. And so he's confronted through an odd set of circumstances with the opportunity to become a drug dealer and cook crystal meth and use chemistry skills to that end, which he decides to do just for a short time, just to earn money so that he can provide for his family. Now, the series over five seasons, what it does is it shows the moral development or, in this case, uh, moral degradation or or lack of development, right? Anyway, the moral decline of Walter White, who goes from someone who was a nonviolent, caring chemistry teacher in the beginning of the series to someone who was a ruthless, vicious drug lord by the end of season five. And it charts that process. But the key is that the process is one that involves certain narratives within Walter White's own head about who he is and how he is supposed to act, and you see his character struggling with this. And that in the end, the virtues that he cultivates in his life and the communities that he cultivates change who he is morally as an individual. The same thing happens with us, according to people like Stanley Hauerwas, except it can also be done for the good. So you have different communities in your life, all with their different moral assumptions that you spend time with. How often do you question those? How much time you spend on it? So for instance, church. Why do you come to church on Sunday morning? Stanley Hauerwas would argue that church is exceptionally important for you to come to on Sunday morning because on Sunday morning, what do you hear on Sunday morning? You hear the narrative of the Christian faith told in a particular way in a particular community and that shapes your moral compass and who you are. And the more often you come here and the more often you hear that narrative, the narrative becomes a part of who you are and shapes your decisions. It cultivates certain virtues. And then as you act within the community, you continue to cultivate those virtues. So every Sunday, you have to come to a church like First Congregational and hear the message that you should be compassionate to other people. You should not act out in anger, but be compassionate. That's what it means. You should serve others. You should try and spend time in prayerful, peaceful reflection to center yourself in the presence of God. This particular congregation is one also that emphasizes social justice, caring for those on the margins of society, those who are poor, those who are disadvantaged, those who are in prison, those who are immigrants. And when you come to church, you hear those messages week after week, and it shapes who you are as a moral individual so that when you act in other spheres of your life, It changes how you act. And if you act in a different way than that, you have to justify it in your moral narrative in your head. Again, what does Paul say in verse 15 to Timothy? What's his advice to Timothy? Remember Jesus Christ. Remember modeling yourself on that individual. Remember Jesus Christ and be eager to present yourselves as someone who is tested and tried. Someone who's gone through it again and again and again. A worker so experienced that you have nothing to be ashamed of when you do your work because you've done it so many times and you know what you're doing such that when you talk, you cut straight through to the word of truth. He's encouraging Timothy to continue to to develop those virtues that are in a Christian community so that he becomes a more Christian individual and lives a Christian life. For someone like Stanley Hauerwas, the Christian ethical life is not about back and forth. It is about a journey, a development. 
And key to that development is the time you spend in communities like this one. Right before I entered Divinity School, one book I read that I loved was Thomas Merton's Seven Story Mountain. This is Thomas Merton's spiritual autobiography. And one of the things that struck me when I read it through was that he was Merton who grew up as an atheist, but was intensely interested in the virtue in the value of finding truth. And so he continued through the course of his life to search out truth as he could, and that ended up leading him into the Roman Catholic Church of his time, and then eventually to become a Trappist monk. And the interesting thing about Merton is he continued that search for truth, which led him to be a great spiritual writer, and eventually led him out of the monastery into political activism and into interreligious work and dialogue. And so the question that we have to consider for ourselves today is what moral narratives do you prioritize? Do you interrogate the morality of the various communities in which you spend your time? And is that the type of moral development that you want for yourself? The great 19th century preacher Phillips Brooks said... Character may be manifested in the great moments, but it's made in the small ones. Character may be manifested in the great moments, but it's made in the small ones. Spiritual integrity comes from interrogating what exactly the morals are of the communities in which you spend your time and making sure that you choose carefully where you want to do it. Remember Jesus Christ. And be eager to present yourselves to God as someone who is tried and tested. A worker without shame. One cutting through to the truth.